You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Wednesday, June 10, 2020, just after market close here in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Jay Pulaski, co-founder and CIO of TPW. But first, here's Jack Farley with the latest on today's Fed news. Thanks, Ash. The Fed this afternoon reinforced their commitment to support the U.S. economy and U.S. asset markets, vowing in the FOMC statement released at 2 p.m. today that it plans to keep rates between zero and a quarter percent for at least 2020. And a look at the dot plot shows that this decision is unanimous for 2021 and predominant for 2022 as well. In fact, Fed Chairman Jay Powell underscored this view in his speech, saying we are not thinking about raising rates. We are not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. The Fed pledged an additional $80 billion per month in treasuries and $40 billion per month for mortgage-backed securities. And it also guaranteed that it would continue its overnight repo operations to support the dollar funding markets. Now, this is a far cry from the $800 billion per month the Fed was providing at the height of this crisis, but it's still plenty above the rate of replacement. So you can expect the Fed balance sheet to pass that $7.2 trillion mark soon. Curiously absent in the FOMC's report was any mention of yield curve control. But in his speech, Jay Powell did call it an open question. The Fed also released some of its economic projections. For 2020, the Fed is predicting a 6.5% contraction in real GDP and a 5% increase the following year. The median projection for unemployment stands at 9.3% and 6.5% the next year. In 2022, they're projecting a 5.5% unemployment rate. And for headline inflation, this year they say it's going to be 0.8%. Next year, they're projecting 1.6%. And in 2022, 1.7%. Some very grim numbers indeed. And those are just median projections. If you look at the outliers, there are Federal Reserve board members who expect GDP contraction to continue into 2021. And there are others who estimate that unemployment in 2022 will still be at 8%. And all of this is within the context of new monetary policy tools and an ever-expanding balance sheet. So even though the release today was in line with expectations, I think it did reify this brave new world of monetary policy that we find ourselves in. You know, lower for longer was a European practice, but now it's been fully imported to the U.S. So I think that the question going forward is, Will yield curve control, which, as you know, was pioneered by the BOJ, will that practice reach American shores as well? Back to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Thanks, Jack. Welcome, Jay. First time on Real Vision Daily Briefing. We're happy to have you. Thanks, Ash. Happy to be here. So, Jay, let's start with uh, what everyone's thinking about. Today is Fed Day. What are your thoughts? Well, I think uh, not really a whole lot, to be honest, Ash. I mean, there was no real change in the outlook, um, the economic 
projections are kind of what people are expecting. You know, very tough uh, 2020, recovery in 2021. Uh, I thought it was interesting, uh, unlikely to raise rates until 2023. I think that's very supportive for uh, a new bull market in equities, which is what our opinion is here. We're in a new bull market. And so I kind of felt like actually the more important news out of D.C., Today was uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin coming out in support of uh, more fiscal stimulus, which is not really a surprise given we're in an election year. But still, I think that's the kind of uh, information that the market will uh, need to hear going forward. Whereas the Fed, I think, has proven itself uh, several months ago. It is absolutely willing to do uh, whatever is necessary to support an economic recovery, which I believe, by the way, we're already underway. Yeah, absolutely. That's been the clear signal from the Federal Reserve. Jay, you've been broadly constructive and overweight U.S. equities for some time now, but you've recently upgraded that call. Yes, correct. Actually, uh, Ash, we uh, went back into equities uh, with some uh, overweight positioning in April, uh, tilted that more uh, uh, outside the United States and reinforced that more recently. Uh, we called a new bull market two weeks ago arguing that uh, when the S&P uh, cleared 3,000, cleared some important technical levels and really opened the door uh, together with some very powerful red thrusts, a technical indicator that uh, really typically signals new bull markets. So we made the new bull market call uh, two weeks ago. And last week we came out with a piece saying that the rotation trade or reflation trade is in its infancy. And so I think at this point, we're really talking about uh, a, uh, a new bull market with new leadership that is uh, from U.S. to non-U.S. equities. Okay, that's, that's the first step. From growth to value, from defensive uh, sectors to, uh, to cyclical sectors, uh, and then into uh, commodities. Uh, and I think it's going to be very interesting, Ash, that everyone's talking, and you and I spoke, like, what a great job the technical team at Real Vision has done to keep you guys going. And we're, everyone's talking about digitalization and how this is accelerating digitalization. The surprise is going to be that over the next couple of quarters, at least, I expect commodities to outperform technology stocks. That's very interesting. Before we get on to technology stocks versus commodities, you write a very detailed note. Let's dig into some of the framework, the thesis, some of the analysis that goes into this call on the equity side. I'm curious, are you long uh, for structural, cyclical, technical reasons, all of the above, and why? Yeah, it's actually uh, one of the things that's interesting about this time, Ash, is that it's kind of all of the above, right? Um, we've uh, posited, I guess, um, for months now, actually going back to the turn of the year, our, our title uh, piece or our piece was titled for 2020, uh, Reflation 2020, which we wrote in December. And we were really of the opinion at that time that we were coming out of a, a, a manufacturing slowdown and starting to accelerate the global economy. And then of course we ran into COVID and we had uh, the end of that expansion, right? The longest expansion in US history, 128 months. And we're, we, we've replaced it, uh, we believe, with the shortest recession on record, right? So we, the expansion ended in February and the recession likely ended in May with the job numbers. So we're already bottomed. And one of the things that, that really we've identified is with COVID-19, 
its signature kind of uh, thing. If you think about if you think about the speed of the spread of the virus, or you think about uh, the speed of the policy response, one of the things that market participants didn't really capture in real time was how much more aggressive the speed of the uh, policy response was, even versus uh, 08 or 09. And then, of course, the speed of the market response, right? An absolute incredible move from a 30 percent uh, downdraft, uh, the fastest ever off an all-time high, to now a 40 percent up move. Again, fastest in history. Now, I think there are two other phases going forward that, are going, that, that reinforce this idea that the signature issue for COVID-19 is speed. And the two things coming forward are the speed of the science response, typically takes five to 10 years for a vaccine. We're likely to see a vaccine before the end of this year, early next year, unprecedented speed. And then I think the speed of the economic recovery is also going to surprise people and already has. If you look at, for example, uh, switching now to kind of the fundamentals of the economy, if you look at the city economic surprise index on a global basis, on a U.S. basis, on a European basis, doesn't matter. It's been a rocket ship uh, higher over the last several weeks. And so we're in a situation now where we expect to see for the next several months, the next couple of quarters, better uh, economic data in the U.S. and around the world. And it's important, Ash, to note that the U.S. is kind of third in line in terms of the virus, right? It, it hit first in Asia, secondly in Europe, and then third in the United States. So the rest of the world is already reopening and is ahead of the United States uh, in the reopening process. So better economic data, continued policy response. We use the term uh, rolling thunder to talk about the policy response. So no global coordination, but a rolling thunder of individual country and regional responses, as we saw last week in Europe with the ECB and, and the, uh, the German uh, political leadership, really making almost unprecedented uh, stimulus moves. So there's there's the economic fundamentals, there's the policy response, and then there's the market player reaction where we still have, for example, very negative sentiment. Uh, if you look at the AAII um, bold bear sentiment indicator, for example, which has a long history, it's still uh, quite bearish. And so uh, we also think that there, the last point here is that there's room for a uh, significant uh, move out of fixed income and into equity. And there's also, of course, uh, just to finish up, uh, a tremendous pile of cash, tremendous liquidity around the world that is looking for a home and will find its way probably first to financial assets uh, before um, finding its way into the real economy. You know, it's so interesting, Jay. You mentioned the real economy. One of the, I think, it almost seems like there's a battle between those who say the damage done to the real economy has been enormous. We've got in the U.S., for example, uh, you know, some contention about the unemployment numbers recently. But whether it's 21 million or 27 million, it's a lot of unemployed people, a lot of people who don't have a job, versus the policy response, liquidity from the central bank, fiscal stimulus. The, the ones who are uh, a bit more bearish than you about this say, look, the damage is immense. Uh, and it's the policy response. It's the Band-Aid on top of the problem that is pumping these markets up. What's your response to that? Um, I think we have to compare it. Let's compare it to, uh, for example, 08 and 09, right? In 2008, 2009, P 
people's wealth is are concentrated in two buckets, the home, value of the home, and uh, securities, financial securities. And in 0809, both were hammered down 40 or 50%. Contrast that with today. Today, you have a situation where home values are fine, actually probably rising. Stocks are flat, uh, possibly rising. You've had tremendous uh, stimulus provided by uh, the government. I mean, I'll just give you an illustration. I call it the bear market headline, bull market insight. If, if you think about the, um, the income and spending uh, report uh, a couple weeks ago, this is one of the things that really caught our eye. It's emblematic of the environment. Uh, the headline was personal spending down 13% or something, record drop in spending. The insight was incomes were up 10%, right? Mm -hmm. So you had the collapse in wage income, uh, about a trillion dollars, was more than replaced by $3 trillion of policy support. So a net positive of $2 trillion. And so you had a savings rate that is now at 33%. 33%, it typically is around 5 or 6%. So there is tremendous, uh, the thing that people aren't grasping is there is tremendous money to be spent. And as we reopen, we're seeing that money being spent, whether it's in Europe or uh, less so in Asia. And here's an interesting thing about using China as the template. China doesn't have that kind of savings capacity or it does have big savings, but it's typically for retirement and for purchasing a home. The European consumer, the American consumer is much better off and much better positioned because its wealth is intact and the flow of money has been substantial. And as we reopen, we're already seeing restaurants, we're seeing uh, airlines, we're seeing automobiles. And I think the real interesting point, Ash, is again, we have to think forward. Speed is really almost wild here in this environment. You have to be thinking forward. And thinking forward is likely to mean that we're going to have a demand shock. The shock, the surprise is going to be that demand is better than expected. And you're going to potentially run into su supply problems because of supply chain disruption, U.S.-China fight, reshoring, all these things. And I think the surprise is going to be that you have some inflationary pressure. You're already seeing, for example, UPS putting in peak pricing the first time ever outside of the Christmas holiday season. So I think the surprise is going to be demand comes back faster than expected. Supply chain interruptions lead to uh, shortfalls, price increases, a little bit of inflation. This is completely counter uh, consensus, right? Everybody's talking deflation, a little whiff of inflation, higher rates at the back end. We have a steepening yield curve, constructive for financials, and that's a tailwind because financials are one of the main uh, value cyclical sectors. And I think you still have uh, tremendous room to run in some of those segments. Well, you know, Jay, this is so interesting, and, and we really appreciate you coming on and giving this perspective. You know, I, I think one of the things that makes Real Vision so interesting is that we look for voices that are very diverse. And we've heard, I think, a lot in the last week or so that felt uh, definitely had a bit more of a bearish tilt. I'm so curious, when you talk about this idea of what's going to happen to demand, there's this open question about demand deferral versus demand destruction. Do you believe it just gets pushed forward? And what about those who say, listen, if, you know, you went out with your spouse once a week for a steak dinner, you're not going to ever make up for those steak dinners. They're just lost. And so there's been some irretrievable destruction of demand. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts about that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I think obviously, I mean, I'm in New York City here in Manhattan, and uh, clearly we're still in, in just opening phase one. So the idea of going out to a restaurant is uh, I've almost forgotten what it feels like. But I can assure you of one thing. When that restaurant reopens, I will be there, and I'll be happy to be there, and I don't think I'm going to be alone. I'll give you another illustration. We're making plans to go away uh, for a couple weeks in uh, July in Aspen. A week ago, there were five different opportunities we were looking at. Today, there is one. Things are moving very, very quickly. I think there's, uh, I think even if you look at uh, the protests as an example, a lot of the support, obviously it's, a, it's a, an appropriate issue to be protesting, but I think a lot of the kind of outpouring, and particularly around the world, not just in the U.S., is because people have been cooped in their homes for three months. Now they can finally get out. And so to me, um, I think it's much more that, as I said, I believe demand is going to come back much faster than people expect. If it is the case that people are going to move outside of the urban areas and go into more rural or uh, semi-urban uh, environments, that means more cars. That means a whole host of things. And if you look at things like inventories for automobile uh, producers, they're very low. If you look at wholesale inventories, very low. Retail inventories, very low. Because we were all prepped for the U.S.-China trade tiff, and inventories have been kept down. So if you do have a surge in demand, uh, then I think, you're, as I said, I think it's going to be a surprise. We have seen surprises, positive economic surprises. I mentioned the city uh, economic surprise index. I think that continues, and that continues to build the cyclical trade, the rotation trade, the reflation trade, which, by the way, many investors miss the bottom. And I've had numerous conversations. You were talking about some of your conversations. Here's one of the things that I've taken away from some of mine over the last two weeks. A lot of people miss the bottom, okay? Fine. They're not going to miss the rotation trade. And we saw that last week. When people came in, they didn't buy tech because they already own tech. The thing they kept was the tech. When they came in, they're buying the rotation reflation trade because that's the one they haven't missed. And I think that, plus what I just described on the economy, rates backing up at the long end, steepening yield curve, better data, that's what's going to reinforce the cyclical uh, rotation trade. Well, I'm definitely with you. I'm not leaving New York City. I'm 30 seconds away from the six train, and that's the way I like it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious, Jay, what are some of the things that you're going to be looking for uh, that will demonstrate that your thesis is right or needs adjustment as we go forward over the next uh, relatively short-term time horizon, let's say the next uh, 60 days? Well, I think um, you want to see a continuation of good economic data. Uh, you want to see continued uh, policy support. Uh, but I think, uh, and you don't want to see, I think it's important to think and spend some time about, you know, what could what could disrupt this uh, this perspective, this bullish outlook. Yeah. Uh, and, and there, I think, it, there is a concern that the U.S. Uh, reopened um, in a haphazard way without having fully uh, uh, contained uh, COVID-19. And so I think there is a risk, and it's a rising risk, which is a little bit worrisome, uh, that uh, some of the curves are bending upward in some states, and there may be a need to kind of reimpose some restrictions. And I think that's going to be, uh, that if that comes across and comes across more than once or twice, and people start to really worry about the reopening, 
I, I think that is going to be uh, a major, a major headwind. The other headwind, uh, now maybe going out a little bit more than 60 days, is uh, seasonals, right? Uh, when we get into August, September, October, seasonally, that's the toughest period for, uh, for equities. And I think that's going to be a potential uh, headwind. And then, of course, we have the election. Uh, also uh, a potential headwind. I think the campaigning season is going to be nasty. It's going to be ugly. Uh, and I do think that reinforces a little bit of the tendency for people to take some money off the table in U.S. assets. I think that's going to be expressed particularly through the dollar. Uh, the dollar has been uh, the defensive asset of choice. It's been the U.S. and financial assets have been the choice for the last decade. Uh, one of the things that we've hypothesized is whether or not COVID-19 would be able to upend that U.S. financial dominance, much as it's upended virtually everything else on the planet. And it wasn't uh, clear that that would be sufficient, but that plus, I think, kind of the chaotic nature of the response to the protests, plus the worries about a, a nasty, ugly political campaign season, plus the recovery and the valuation and the under-ownership of the non-U.S. equity markets, particularly uh, developed non-U.S. markets, which are value plays inherently. That's really where the opportunity uh, starts to uh, come into play, and that feeds into the commodity argument, which, by the way, commodities were up 20 percent in the last month, still down 40 percent, broad commodity index, still down 40 percent as of today. Jay, speaking of indices, what are you looking at as your proxy of the dollar? Uh, I look at DXY. Any key technical levels on DXY that you think are worth thinking about? Uh, not at this moment. Um, it's more of a kind of structural uh, thematic call than it is a technical call. Probably technically, Ash, it's already had a pretty decent move, and maybe it backs and fills a little bit here. Um, one thing we do look at as an illustration is the um, Aussie dollar versus the yen which is a good growth versus kind of safety defensive proxy, and that's breaking out uh, to new highs. So when you look at things like the euro, for example, at 113, um, easily could go towards the, the high teens uh, in the next couple of months. Uh, I think there's really room for broad uh, appreciation outside of the dollar, perhaps even in some of the emerging market currencies, which have been absolutely hammered and have had big recoveries. I mean, things, again, moving so fast that one week to the next, you can have a 20% move uh, in some of these uh, currencies and, and indices. So one has to be a little bit careful, but I think uh, thematically, we want to be highlighting that idea of a new bull market, non-U.S. equity. We want to be in the cyclicals and the value, particularly in financials on both sides of the Atlantic. We like European financials. We like U.S. banks. Um, we think there's opportunities there. Uh, more so than in the United States and more so than in technology in particular. Where do you see value or growth in European financials right now specifically? Well, I think value is, is clear. Uh, Morgan Stanley came out with a piece uh, a week ago saying that the European banks were selling at 27, uh, uh, 27% below fair value. Um, I think you have a situation where the European economy, the books are clean for the most part. The banks have been cleaning up their act there for years. Um, so I think there's definitely a valuation call. They're probably the most hated asset. I think you can ask Raul um, about that. Uh, I think that's his quote, uh, most hated asset in the world. Um, so clearly there's, uh, there's opportunity there. And I do think that as Europe recovers, and, and one has to say, 
that the response by European policymakers uh, has been, I think, again, better than expected, uh, right? No, I don't think too many people thought the Germans were going to come out with a, a fiscal stimulus package equal to 4 or 5% of GDP. The European Joint Recovery uh, Fund, much bigger than expected, remains to be seen exactly how it plays out. But I think the opportunity is, uh, is that they merge that Joint Recovery Fund with the Green Deal. In Europe, in my view, has a chance to take the leadership role in two critical areas, one being technology, uh, where they're the regulator, the global regulator, kind of the, the, the tiff between China and the U.S. and technology. Europe sits in the middle. And then in climate. And so I think, and this is really going out on a limb, but I'll do it here. I do think that there's an opportunity for the decade uh, we're in now, the 2020s, to be the decade of Europe. The decade of Europe and potentially the decade of ESG. Uh, yes, and those two things kind of go together. You can't uh, you can't launch a, a fixed uh, financial product in Europe without it having an ESG component. I mean, that's uh, I've, I've talked to many people, and that's definitely uh, the point that they uh, bring home every time. And I do think, look, you just contrast the response uh, to Europe's Green Deal with the response in the United States to the Green New Deal that was actually pro proposed before Europe's uh, deal. So, I mean, the, the two are polar opposite, right? So to me, and, and one of the things that underpins our whole thesis at TPWIM is what we call the tripolar world, which argues, and it's a thesis I've had for a decade, I've been writing about it for a decade, and it's really the argument that regional integration, regional deepening in Asia, Europe, and the Americas is the next direction for the global economy. Everything I've seen in the last couple of years from the election of President Trump to Brexit to SplinterNet between the U.S. and China with technology to reshoring and supply chain uh, shrinkage, bringing things closer to home, all this plays into this uh, idea of regional deepening. And Europe has the potential through the Green Deal and the Joint Recovery Program to actually make major strides in the integration within Europe. And let's remember, Europe is a $17 trillion economy, 600 million people, trades at a significant discount to the United States, is completely under-owned. B of A made the point last week, Ash, $600 million went into European equities last week, European equity funds. The first inflow in two months, $600 million. We're talking, we're talking trillions of dollars here, and they think it's important enough to note 600 million. So there's, there's uh, I think, tremendous room, uh, tremendous skepticism, too, and you have to watch it play out. But from here, um, I think you have had better uh, than expected policy response. You've had a labor market that is uh, very different from the U.S., so unemployment's nowhere near uh, what it is in the United States. Europe is much more robust in terms of keeping its labor force employed. You're starting to see the reopenings already. Uh, they handled the virus very well. And China is recovering, and Europe is a, in a, at the margin, particularly Germany, a play on China. Well, you know, as you say, and there's, I'm sure there'll be skepticism on our platform. This is a very different view than we're used to hearing. But it's so important to understand, I think, the, the bull case or even the counter case for just the, the predominant uh, opinion of what you read. It's so interesting to hear you being bullish on Europe and especially on European financials. I have to ask, do you think that, that it's just a pure uh, straight up value play because they're trading some 20 to 30 percent below price to book? It's something that you're short term uh, constructive on? Or is this someplace that you see real value because you believe there's 
actual uh, stability there because of, you know, deepening integration from a political perspective? Uh, it's the latter. And, and you know, I, I have, uh, to be honest, I've held uh, uh, the European financial uh, position for quite some time, and I've had ups and downs on it, for sure. It's been a volatile asset. Um, but I think within a, within a uh, cyclical global recovery, where Europe is uh, surprising to the upside with its uh, policy response, uh, and you, you are looking for a, a, a shift from growth to value and from defensives to cyclicals, European banks have got to sit right up there as one of the cheapest, uh, most hated, least owned financial asset opportunities in the world. You know, we talked about uh, technical levels a few minutes ago. Uh, the S&P, uh, I'm going to take that one one more time. You know, we talked about technical levels a few minutes ago. The Nasdaq closed above 10,000 for the first time ever today. Uh, what What do you say to people who say this is starting to look bubblicious? These uh, big cap, mega cap tech stocks are a huge concentration of this rally. I think they're 38 or 40 percent now, uh, and this feels, you know, the days uh, of the 1990s that uh, some of us are old enough to remember. Uh, the Dow and the S and P declining, Nasdaq rising. What, what say you to that perspective? Well, I was, I was around in the 90s as well. Um, and uh, boy, I have some funny stories. Uh, I was actually in Antarctica um, truing a film uh, when NASDAQ cracked. And I got a satellite phone call um, telling me that the NASDAQ had fallen like 10 or 12%. Literally, I'm on an icebreaker in, uh, in South Georgia Island. We were doing a remake of uh, Shackleton's famous uh, journey. Um, uh, the endurance story, and literally sitting there in an icebreaker, uh, getting a call saying Nasdaq was down 12 percent, and, and you know people want to know what you think. I was a global uh, equity strategist at Morgan Stanley at that time, so I remember those days. I don't think, frankly, that we're anywhere close to that. I think it's a, a mischaracterization. Today's tech stocks are real; they're big, they're powerful, they print money. Uh, and they're going to be fine. Uh, they probably overowned. Absolutely. Are they expensive? Yes. Are they going to collapse 50 percent? Absolutely not. Um, I think that tech, to me, is a source of cash, as I touched on earlier. It's going to be probably an okay performer. Absolute going to be fine, but relative underperformer to the cyclical and value segments, which is critical that we have that shift away from you know, that herding into those few names, right? It's bullish for rotation and for the market to broaden out. And that's why those breadth thrusts, which I mentioned earlier from a technical perspective, I'm not a technician, but I respect technical analysis, particularly in markets like this. I'm not a technician, but I think that you have a clear broadening and a broadening in new leadership are hallmark classic uh, uh, illustrations of a new bull market. Jay, let me play devil's advocate here for a moment. So CNBC had a headline uh, earlier today, the hot new thing to make your stock pop go bankrupt. Uh -huh. Jim Cramer came on television yesterday and basically said, uh, guys, just so you know, common stock has the lowest priority in the event of bankruptcy. A lot of these stocks that are popping right now, you can lose everything on. I can speak personally from my own experience. I have friends who are day trading who should not be day trading. It reminds me uh, in the old days when the Knicks were playing worse than usual and Marv Albert would say, it's garbage time here at the Garden. It's garbage time for a lot of these bankrupt stocks. And it's concerning to see people who shouldn't be speculating in those places speculating. Does that have any broader purchase on your view? Or is that 
something that you see as a narrow pocket of the market that's unrelated to the broader trend? I think it's an excellent question, Ash, because it has been getting a lot of attention, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I almost hesitate to admit it, but my 14-year-old son uh, has been trumpeting his success in the airline stocks uh, over the last couple of weeks, making me, asking me the other day, here you go, my 14-year-old, Dad, when was the last time your portfolio was up 17% in a day? <laughs> and I'm like... Oh, my God, my 14-year-old is schooling me. So, yes, I mean, I think it's absolutely uh, uh, going on. Um, I don't think it's that important. I think it's uh, it makes sense. Again, if you think about it, people are not working or they're not working full time. There's no sports. There's no real anything to bet on. So, yes, you have a little bit of money and you open a Robin Hood account and you're playing in these uh, in these uh, bankrupt hurts or the airlines. Sure. A uh, little speculation uh, for sure. But it's not in any way uh, a meaningful indicator as to the overall ap attitude and appetite for equities. I would just point you to the size of the uh, money market funds at $5 trillion. I would point you to the AAII survey I just mentioned still quite bearish. I would point you to the underweight positions and equities and the overweight positions and bonds that pretty much every survey of institutional investors will highlight. I'd point you to the uh, pension funds who are uh, underweight equity, overweight fixed income. I think there's significant room, significant room for money to come back into the equity market, to take the equity market to new all-time highs. Uh, before the end of the year is quite feasible, if not early next year. And I think the important point, again, not to belabor it, but the real opportunity uh, today is outside the U.S., is not in technology, it's in value, it's not in defensives, it's in cyclicals. So uh, financials, industrials, energy, commodities, um, miners, uh, I think there's lots of pockets of opportunity uh, for people to look to. Uh, there is a little bit of that bubbly speculation, but I don't think in any way it characterizes the broad market. Jay, any final thoughts? Yeah, Ash, you know, I think we've covered a tremendous amount of ground. Thank you for some great questions. The one final thought I would recommend to people is that I think there's going to be a, a whole generation of U.S. investors. Last decade has been the place to be in the U.S. Need to start to look outside look at the rest of the world, look at Europe, look at Japan, look at some parts of the emerging markets, because we're in a new bull market, and the, the, the flagship of this new bull market is going to be new leadership away from tech, away from growth, away from the U.S., away from the dollar, to those other parts of the world, to the cyclical, to the value segments, to the commodity space. That's the area to focus on. That's the area of opportunity. And it probably means getting out a map and maybe even going, once you're allowed to, to check out Europe and Japan and parts of the emerging markets all by yourself. Happy travels. I'm, equal to take, I'm eager to take the subway again. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Jay, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ash. Been a pleasure. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.